All right. Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to be looking again. I'm going to back up a little bit and we're going to look at verses 24 again in the Word of God because I kind of went a little fast last time in this area and I wanted to go back because it's such an important uh, part of Scripture. But before we go there, I just want to uh, say that we've been making a, a sharp contrast between the Sinai mountain experience and Mount Zion in the Word of God, which really is meant to show, show the drastic difference Christ makes in our approach to God the Father. In fact, if it was not for Christ's approach or Christ's sacrifice, we could not approach God the Father. We would end up being at Mount Sinai uh, under God's judgment in fear and in trembling. But for a Christian, our approach is favorable. It's welcomed by God. But only because we have been reconciled to Jesus Christ, only because we have a mediator between us and God, only because we have been sprinkled by His blood and we have been reconciled, made friends, made friends to God, the Father, Jesus Christ, the Son. That's, that's an odd uh, phrase or a word to, to be a friend of God. And yet that's, that's the point being made here in the scripture that God wants us to know we're friends of God because of, of Christ's death. And if you're friends, you don't have to uh, you don't have to put on masks. You can be just who you are. But it does tell you that if you are a friend of God, it's a different kind of friendship than a human friendship because God is still the judge and he's still holy. And so therefore, we always have to consider that when we are approaching God. And already, we have seen that the atmosphere is quite different between the mountains. One has an atmosphere of fear. Uh, the other has a festival atmosphere. And always rem remember that Mount Zion must, must be appreciated as very different because really believers are brought to a place where they will enjoy, and I mean it, enjoy close and delightful fellowship with God and constant access to Him. So in Christ, God becomes approachable, and we together discover that what awaits us is what the Bible calls Mount Zion. Verse number 22 in chapter 12. For you have come. And what are the things that I've mentioned already or the scriptures already listed? Number one, you've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And of course, those are all synonyms describing Zion, pointing to the reality of what's ahead. And then when we get there, there is a myriad of angels we share in joyful celebration alongside angels quite unusual and quite wonderful at the same time and then of course number three to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven verse 23 that we will be a special group enjoying because of our union with christ the rights of firstborn and remember in modern day vernacular the rights of firstborn is that we get the full size inheritance there's nothing that's held back from God's children whatsoever. So this is surely true. And the truth always has a way of making one joyful when responded to correctly. Just think, we have come to membership in the city of God. Now this supplies us with the confidence and the endurance to run this race in a very doable manner. It's doable to run the race as we're thinking through what's ahead of us, what's at the finish line. And so 
The fourth thing that I mentioned last week in the middle of verse number 23 is that you have come to, the, to God, the judge of all. Now that was a sobering one. Even though we, we, we come to celebrate at Mount Zion, there is always a reminder of the serious certainty that we are coming into the very glorious presence of God who is still the judge of all, the God who will dole out precise and perfectly measured judgment wherever it is going to be needed. God will take care of everything. If somebody escaped justice here, they will not escape it there. They'll not escape it before God. And so, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 23 and 24, really does help us see why there's an emphasis on a festival atmosphere. Because something has happened. Something has changed the position of the persons who stand before God. Believers have been declared righteous and made perfect before the Father. And we see also the fifth thing is that the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And of course here that word perfect could also mean, as I mentioned, to bring to the goal to bring to the finish line. And of course, along with that, it does mean to perfect. We can't get into God's presence unless we're perfect. And the only one who's going to make us perfect is God Himself. In fact, back in chapter 9, verse 9, we see that it says, which is a symbol of the present time according to Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations of the body imposed until a, a time of reformation. In other words, that all these religious ceremonial things could never have made someone perfect before God. It had to take someone who would die in their place as a perfect sacrifice, an unblemished sacrifice who perfectly obeyed the Father. And when you come to Jesus, then it is Jesus himself that makes you perfect. So that also includes this, that there is nothing lacking in our relationship with God because of what Christ has done. There's nothing to prevent us from having access to God's holy presence. There's nothing that could hold us back. Nothing at all. It's all been taken care of. And of course, that is great encouragement when we think about what Christ has done for us. You know, I, I was thinking the other day, man, Hebrews is such a deep, heavy theological book sometimes. We really have to put our thinking cap on when we're, when we're reading through it and studying through it. And, and I says, yet God wanted us to know this. He wanted us to know this. He wants us to think about this. And I'm saying, man, what's usually, you know, I can give you a really nice story, make you happy, and uh, we can all have a good old time and, and walk out of here, and we'll, maybe we'll never even get to a passage of Scripture like this, and we'll all go home, think we're all right. And yet God says, no, I want, I want them to know this. I, went, I want them to be thinking about this. So see, last time, I took in list six and seven as a package because I wanted, you to, I wanted to take you to, to verse number 25 of chapter 12, all right? I'm going to look at that one more time because I concluded in the message last time with a question. And the question is, I started really with it and ended with it, what do you think God will do if someone ignores or minimizes or sets aside or rejects God's final revelation in Jesus Christ. What do you think he'll do? See, that was the question. Because verse number 25 is pointing out the possibility of apostasy from the profession of the gospel. That somebody decides, after hearing the message of the gospel, to drop out. They decide to reject him who speaks from heaven. Now, if someone does that, what will God the judge do? Verse 25, look what it says. See to it that you 
do not refuse him who was speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth. Who's that? Moses, right? Moses was the mediator between God and man in the Old Testament, in the beginning there. And remember, when God spoke at Mount Sinai, the people says, we can't take it. Don't speak to us anymore, but speak through Moses. And so Moses could be the in-between between us and God because God's presence is much too frightening. It's easier to deal with a man. And so when the people grumbled and complained, who did they grumble and complain against? Moses, right? But actually they were grumbling and complaining against God. So often when we think about Moses being the mediator back then, it's easy to forget that God's behind it all. And so therefore we can grumble against the man, we can, we can uh, curse even men, but if it's really God's representative here on earth as Moses was the mediator, then therefore Moses was speaking for God. So it says in verse 25, if they didn't escape when they refused to listen to him who warned on earth, look what it says, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. So who warns from heaven? Well, the heavenly mediator is the resurrected Jesus Christ who is now seated at the right hand of the Father. And of course, he sits there, not only interceding for the believers, but he warns through the preaching of the Word of God, through God's final revelation, which I'm preaching this morning, he warns from heaven. How do you think anybody would ever get away from God's message of the gospel? That this passage is really speaking of the absolute disastrous eventuality of cutting self oneself off from the grace of God and therefore what is left is God's judgment. The Lord is no longer savior to a person like that. He's just their judge. Is appointed once for a man to die and then what? The judgment of God, right? So without Christ, your people are in big trouble. Huge trouble. See, Christ does make the difference. In every whatever way you want to turn, he makes the difference. In making that important point, I briefly last time mentioned verse 24, but because, because of its importance, I, w- I want to go back to it. And that's what I want to do this morning. I want to go back to it because there's someone else who also awaits us at Mount Sinai. I mean, excuse me, Mount Zion. And um, who is that? Well, before I even look at the passage, and I want you to turn, uh, look there with me in your Bibles, uh, we have come really to two very important things in this passage, uh, which pro- really provide the basis for believers having entry into the joyful heavenly gathering at Mount Zion. Both of them, both of these two things, both of them remain consistent, not only within the book of Hebrews, but the entire message of the Bible concerning the person of Jesus Christ. Well, if you look with me at verse number 24 of chapter 12, you see what, you'll see what I mean. It says in verse 24, if I go back to what we have come to, we have come to Jesus. See that? Verse 24. Now, it's interesting that the Bible is telling us here, actually he is using the name, the human name for Jesus. The human name for Christ is Jesus. All right? It is the name that points to his full humanity. Stressing really from the first chapters of Hebrews that Jesus is the Son of God and is fully human And, of course, he is fully God, too. He is the God-man, and in this unique position that no one has ever been in, no one will ever be in this position again. He is the unique uh, Son of God, that he is totally and completely qualified in his role as Savior. To do what? Well, 
just to jog your memory back to chapter 2 of Hebrews in verse number 10 where he started out his message he says this in verse number 10 of chapter 2 for it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory for what reason to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings in other words Jesus is uniquely qualified to bring us to glory to bring us into the presence of God now how does Jesus bring us how does Jesus accomplish bringing us or bringing many children uh, into the glory of God into the presence of God into Mount Zion where we enjoy this tremendous festival that is going to be going on for all eternity how does he do that he does it in two ways in verse number 24 and here's the first way by being the mediator of the new covenant verse 24 and to jesus the mediator of the new covenant and then the second way he does it is by sealing the covenant with his sacrificial death and notice what it says to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Now, I explained a little bit uh, about what, the, what it means there. The last part speaks better than the blood of Abel. All right? And I'll mention that again at the end, but I want to step back and look at the first particular point that is, is explaining to us how the Lord actually accomplished bringing many children to glory, and it's the first thing is by being the mediator of the new covenant now i have to backtrack a little bit i have to go actually go back to uh passages of scripture in the early part of hebrews to kind of bolster this up a little bit because you may have forgotten that the new covenant remember is the un it's unrestricted in its power it's eternal in its duration and it's complete in its effects while in contrast to the new covenant we have the old covenant which is limited, temporary, and only partial. Now, quickly back to chapter 8 of Hebrews for a minute. And if you look at verse number 13, it says, When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to disappear. All that means is that the new covenant has replaced the old covenant. And that's an important point in Hebrews, that the new covenant offers a really a superlative plan for salvation for sinful humanity, that God will be able to completely save a human being as they come to Christ the old covenant and its system of sacrifices and priestly order were powerless to take away sin worshipers were continually plagued by a guilty conscience under the old system they lacked the peace of God the old system at best really restricted access to God gave partial external cleansing and limited pardon from God. Remember, it was a year-by-year year thing. People had to bring sacrifices constantly, that the priests were constantly offering up sacrifices to God. It, it never ended. Why? Because people keep sinning, and so you have to keep offering sacrifices. And even then, you walk away, you, you're, you're forgiven, and then you, you, again you sin again, and there's the guilt that comes. And then you say, okay, I have to go all through it again. So the old system was incapable of bringing anyone, especially the Israelites, of course, uh, into a right standing before God. So they always felt like, oh man, I, I don't ever feel right before God. There was, I never feel cleansed or perfect before God. The old system never uh, brought someone to that place where you always felt that way or knew that that was the case. It wasn't the case. That the old covenant was unable to take a blameworthy sinner and overwhelmed actually by their remorse and longing for release from the oppression and tyranny of 
unrelieved guilt and completely set them free. It was unable to do that. It could not do that. It was never meant to do that. That's a point, too, made in the Word of God. It was never meant to do that. And so even those people in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant had to look forward to something that was going to happen over here. Matter of fact, unless God's promise to Abraham happened over here, and of course we know that included the Messiah, then of course they could not be saved. No one could be saved. So it's this very thought that comes to our mind in, when looking at the book of Hebrews that a Christian begins to realize, wow, what I understand and know is superior to anything else that was, had ever come before, to anything, anything at all. This so great salvation that the Lord has given us is there's nothing that can top it. There's nothing that comes close to it. That a Christian can stand and, de- be, and actually declare, I have been saved. I have been born again. That my whole position before God has changed from one of being unsaved under God's wrath, condemned to one of being saved. One of not being condemned anymore. One that I can say that I am free from condemnation. There's no condemnation against God's children uh, at all whatsoever. In other words, we are moved from one place to another, from the place of not being a Christian to becoming a real, genuine Christian. And then when we know that, we persevere right to the end. We're in this race. We know it. And if you remember, the basic biblical idea of a covenant was a relationship between God and man specifically that was that was to be unbroken but the old covenant or the first covenant that's the way it's mentioned sometimes in scripture was always dependent on man keeping the law it had conditions on it right see that was the that was the great burden of of the law wow god says do this and we they did that and then they broke the law and so what happens as soon as a person broke the law the covenant became ineffective and access to god was lost so it became a wearisome ordeal for anyone in the old testament to ever feel like they can stand up and says i'm free i'm free from god's condemnation they couldn't do that they couldn't do it honestly at least So the new covenant or the second covenant the basic meaning is because Jesus inaugurated this new covenant with his blood people are called by the gospel and then they receive Jesus as their substitute sacrifice and then they have access to God and fellowship with him now with that in mind There's an adjective back in Hebrews chapter 12, and we're going to just stay right there in Hebrews chapter 8 because we're going to go back to Hebrews chapter 9. But there's an adjective connected to verse 24 of chapter 12, and it says this, and to Jesus, and then it says this, the mediator of the new covenant. Now Now we have Moses was the mediator of the old covenant. We only have one other mediator. Each covenant has a mediator in the Old Testament, Moses, in the New Testament, Christ, right? There are no other mediators. In, in fact, it was Paul who, who told uh, Timothy, as Timothy was beginning to pastor the church at Ephesus, there is one God, and what? One mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. So he's stressing again the humanity of Christ in this mediation role that he has before the Father and, and also between men and God. And so the new covenant, the second covenant, is, is this thing that the Lord is uh, becoming the mediator of. And so in Scripture, there are three observations about Jesus' mediatorial role. 
that I just want to know. There's more than this, but I just want to mention them from Hebrews. And the first one is back in chapter 9. Look at verse number 15. Here's the first thing, all right, is that Jesus' mediatorial work enables God's gracious purpose to be retroactive. Now, if you were with me back then, you may remember that where it says in verse number, chapter 9, verse 15, for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant. All right, now let me just stop there for a minute. And remember, a mediator is someone who mediates between two parties. So the mediator stands between two parties. In this case, Jesus stands between us and God the Father. So it's us, Jesus, and God the Father. We have to have the mediator to be able to uh, be able to finally one day approach the Father. So a mediator is really someone who mediates between two parties to remove a disagreement. And in this case, we were enemies of God. The mediator is going to take us uh, as we approach God correctly according to God's plan and make us who are enemies friends of God. He's going to make us who were not forgiven forgiven. And of course, he's going to reconcile us to God. So a mediator could either remove a disagreement or they can bring us, cause us to reach a common goal. Now, both of those things, I believe, are found in the mediatorial work of Jesus Christ because Jesus comes to us as God's mediator, as the one who speaks from heaven now. And why, what does he come to us to do? Well, he comes to bring a righteous God and a disobedient children together. He comes to break down the huge barrier sins have erected between God and man. In fact, if you look at the rest of verse number 15, it says, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption, that word redemption is that word uh, that means actually the redemption of transgressions the word transgression is the word that literally means to cause separation what causes separation between god and us is our sin right so this mediator jesus christ has to deal with the sin and he does it quite differently than a human mediator would do because jesus not only dies for the sinner but he's the mediator for the sinner. He becomes the high priest for the sinner. He becomes the sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice for the sinner. He becomes everything the sinner needs for that mediation to take place where there's complete reconciliation. And so what he does is he, he breaks down this huge barrier of sin that there's no way that we can break down the barrier of sin that we have all erected between us and God. There's no way you can take care of it at all whatsoever because we are such great sinners we sin in thought word deed all the time and so therefore the barrier the wall is huge the debt is unpayable and so what does god do he also as a mediator he does this to open up a way into god's holy presence and then to free us from the slave market of sin that word redemption in this passage of scripture is a word that means to release by payment of a price. And so that's what the Lord does. So there's a problem actually that's being taken care of in our text. And the problem is this. How is it possible for those who were stained and committed sins under the old covenant, how is it possible, and of course, which is powerless to cover sin permanently how are they going to be made clean how are they going to be forgiven under the old covenant if they died under that covenant how, how are they going to be able to do it well hebrews nine fifteen does provide the answer because look what it says in the middle of the verse so that sense of death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant all right so really what's going on here is that he is saying that the mediatorial work of Jesus Christ, God's gracious perfect, to make this offer retroactive. All right? 
So the meaning is that those under the old covenant could be saved because Jesus Christ would be their mediator too. He would be the greater than Moses. And so if Jesus didn't do that, they couldn't be saved. Abraham couldn't have been saved. Moses couldn't have been saved. No one could have been saved unless Christ died. So see, his death is retroactive. And so this retroactive is simply relating or applying to things that have happened in the past as well as the present. And so the term retroactive is used here when we say that the sacrifice of Jesus is is retroactive. It means that the sacrifice of Jesus is effective to wipe out the sins of people committed that they committed under the old covenant and also to give permanent access to God. So that's what it does. So Christ had to die uh, on the cross so Abraham could be saved. He had to die on the cross. So all those who are listed in the hall of faith there in chapter 11 could come into the holy city of God and worship with us. See, it all had to take place. In other words, until Christ, all people in the past yes, even in the present and the future, were and are slaves to sin, but through Christ's work, they and we are released from sin's mastery and set free to serve God as righteous slaves, free to worship God. And so that's what the mediator has done. He's mediated this work of salvation for all of mankind, no matter when they lived. They lived in the past. They lived in the New Testament times. They lived in 100 years ago. They live today. They live 100 years from now. However, however long God's going to tarry, it's the same thing. People need Christ to be their mediator. He need, they need that go-between, that person, because his work takes care of that. It makes things retroactive and presently available to all people who will ever hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there's a second thing in Hebrews 9, verse 15, a second observation that Jesus' mediatorial work enables God's gospel call to be graciously offered. You know what? When, when we go preach the gospel to people, we are offering them something very gracious. We're offering them something free. We're offering them the free offer of coming to believe in Jesus Christ, right? That's what we're doing. But not everyone receives such grace, right? And that's the downside of evangelism. You're pouring your heart out to give the gospel. You're getting ready to give the gospel. You give the gospel, and it's like you didn't give the gospel. <laughs> because people oftentimes reject it. And sometimes you don't even know what's going on in their heart. You can't read their, 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 their mind. You don't know how God may be convicting them. You don't know what level of, of spiritual acceptance they're at. You're either planting a seed, watering the seed, or, or, or maybe God will bring the increase. And even if God does bring the increase by your message, you may not be there to even experience it, right? But God's doing it because we want to be faithful to give out this gracious offer. And because Jesus was the mediator, we can give out a gracious offer to people and, and we pray that they would respond. So it says in verse number 15, those who have been called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. So here, this word called, it carries the meaning of to, to be called out, to be invited, and even to be summoned by God. That when we're preaching the gospel, we are, God is actually summoning people to his call by your message and by your sharing the gospel with them so it even uh, includes here to carry to a immediate end or to a final end and of course the final end here is eternal salvation but those who respond to this heavenly call 
know only too well that God did not call them as a reward for or a response to their special merit or religious devotion or even their moral achievements. That is out of the question because if you can do those things, well, then you cancel out the sacrifice of Christ in the beginning. So it's not of works or any of those things at all. We know that when we're giving out the gospel, it's all of God's free grace, unmerited favor. So this call is much more than an invitation. It also includes the idea of a summons. Now, let me just back up for a minute and just ask this question. How are we to understand the word called here in Hebrews chapter 9? And then in other places it's used in Scripture. Well, we know that there's always an outward call to the gospel, right? That uh, we heard by the ears uh, that um, men can, people can reject many times the gospel. Even it says in Matthew chapter 22, for many are called, but what? Few are chosen. All right? Many are called by the message. All who hear the message are invited to come. They're summons to come. Uh, this call is ineffective by itself, but because all men are totally depraved and hate God by their natures, they resist the call when it goes out. They resist the work of the Holy Spirit when it goes out through your message. And so by our experience, and I know we can get on board with this together, that we know that not everyone who receives the call of the gospel were justified or believed. Not all believe the gospel when they hear it. All right? And that's going to be something that always happens because that's the outward call. There's a second thing, of course, the Bible talks about in related in areas of theology, and that's the inward call. That is, uh, that usually takes place when the outward call happens or is made, maybe not immediately, but maybe sometime later when somebody goes home and they begin to think about if they were rife with God, if they were to die tonight, where would they be? And, and they begin to think about what was being said, and, and the Spirit of God brings to their mind uh, their sin, uh, and that Christ is the only answer. This is the truth. You don't have to search anymore. And therefore, they end up in maybe stumbling all over themselves saying, Jesus, save me. I'm a sinner. I need, I need to be saved by you. I know that no religion, no amount of good work. To I know that you're the only Savior. And they, they just say, they throw themselves on Christ and they say, save me, right? Well, then all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit of God calls them and effectually works in them this miracle in their heart and brings them from spiritual death to spiritual life, right? So that's the great difference between the external call or even an a outward profession of faith and a real call that's come inside by the Spirit of God through the gospel, through your witness, through your preaching the gospel or my preaching the gospel or someone preaching the gospel and the Holy Spirit transforms the heart transforms the mind and the will and of course I can believe I believe that we can understand this passage of scripture as talking about the inward call here in, in scripture for the text speaks of a call that always results in, in justification alright why is that because the end result is eternal redemption the end result is someone who has eternal inheritance, excuse me, in the passage of Scripture. So it's talking about somebody who's really been saved, come to the mediator, Jesus Christ, and now is going to inherit what is theirs because of what Christ has done. It's like what John said in his gospel, it is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing, right? Nothing can the flesh do to supply to someone's salvation. So, therefore, the outward call to salvation is made to everyone who hears God's gospel of grace. Then the Holy Spirit of God extends theologically to the elect a special inward call that inevitably brings them to salvation. 
And so the external call, which is made to all without distinction, anybody we can preach the gospel to, it can be rejected. Whereas the internal call, which is made only to God's elect. I don't know who they are. God knows who they are. They've been elect before the foundation of the world. They need to hear the gospel, right? They can't be saved unless they hear the gospel. They can't have the promises I've been speaking of unless they hear the gospel. And so therefore, every time the Spirit of God gives an inward call, it cannot be rejected. it always results in real conversion. But that's not my work. That's not your work. That's God's work. We are just the messengers. I love what what it says in the first chapter of the Gospel of John, but as many as received him, what what does it say there? To them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but what? But of God, right? They were born again by the will of God. And that's the only way one could be born again, by the will of God. That's the only power uh, that will bring someone to salvation. So that inward call you can't get away from, there's nowhere you can run from it, God will get a hold of your heart. He will convict you of your sin. He will bring you to the only sacrifice that you can believe in uh, to and the substitute, the mediator, and that is Jesus Christ. So there's a third observation in verse number 15 of Hebrews 9. The third observation of Jesus' mediatorial work enables God's gracious promised, his gracious, gracious promised inheritance to be eternal. It says in verse 15, to those who have been called may receive the promise of internal inheritance. Of course, believers in this life have been given the pledge of that inheritance, and the pledge is the Holy Spirit himself. For Paul told the church that you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to redemption of God's own possession to the praise of God's glory. And then, of course, as believers, we remain true to the call. We don't apostatize, as he's mentioning in Hebrews, uh, all the warning passages, and, in, and then in Hebrews chapter 12. We, we don't throw in the towel. We don't get out of the race we don't sit on the bench for any length of time we get back in we get up we're knocked down but we're not knocked out all right that's what believers are so they are the heir uh they're the heirs named in the testator's will so believers are the ones who receive the inheritance and then enter in to the generous promise of god of course as seen all over the word of god so those are Those are some of the ways in Hebrews in which Jesus, being the mediator, brings us to glory, brings us uh, into the presence of God. We could not have done it at all whatsoever on our own. It had to be Christ. Now, that brings me back to Hebrews chapter 12. All right, again, though, I want you to keep your hand in Hebrews chapter 9 because I'm going to go back there again for the basics. To how does Jesus accomplish bringing many sons to glory? A second thing in Hebrews 12, verse 24, is to the sprinkled blood. You know, I thought for a minute and say, that's, that's a unique way of saying it. Why did the writer of Hebrews, why did the Spirit of God say it like that? Well, there's a particular reason he says it like that because this sprinkled blood is connected to how God ratifies covenants. And so, we must go back to Hebrews chapter 9 again to remind, be reminded of the testator's blood. All right? From Hebrews chapter 9, verse 16... 
We see that. Now, a test, I say testator here, again, mentioning it from last time. A testator is a wheel maker. Uh, somebody who makes a valid will. And so here it says this. In verse number 18, or excuse me, verse number 16. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. Verse 17. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead. For it is never in force while one, the one who made it, is, it lives. Here he is talking about the medium for the enforcement of this new covenant is really a word that is connected to Jesus Christ's death, but it means will. It's not an agreement between God and man like the old covenant was. A will is a whole different animal. In fact, here is given a, the very nature of a will or a testament. A death having occurred, what happens after the death, the inheritance is received. So in our, our text, there is an important fact that cannot be missed concerning the death of Christ, and that is, it is the very death of Christ that enables us to receive our internal inheritance, that Jesus' death makes the inheritance accessible to all who are his heirs, irrespective of time. And remember, for a Jew, for a Jew, a dead Messiah is no Messiah. So therefore, this, the death of Jesus Christ becomes a, a great obstacle to those who are of Jewish faith because they, that means that the person could not accomplish what they say they could accomplish because they died. So the author is showing them that Jesus' death is necessary because without his sacrificial death, no testament or no will could be enforced and no sin could be forgiven. So he reminds them that when God inaugurated the first covenant, how did he do it? Well, he didn't do it without the shedding of blood, but with the shedding of blood. So the Mosaic Testament was itself inaugurated with the death and blood of sacrificial victims. Again, Hebrews chapter 9 and verse number 18. All right, the old covenant was put into force by blood. The new covenant is also put into force by blood. But look at verse number 18. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood, verse 19 of Hebrews 9. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet and wool and hyssop, and then notice what it says, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. So again, when does the Bible say a person or a group of people were sprinkled by blood? Well, he's, he's bringing this out from Exodus chapter 24, that people were making a covenant of obedience with God, and that covenant was sealed by blood. Like, he, like it says that half the blood in the Old Testament Moses sprinkled on the altar, and of course that signified God's part, that God would supply the offering, even though they were in types and shadows, all right? So the people could be forgiven. So it says this, Moses took half the blood and put it in, a ba in basins, and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar, and then it says half the blood was sprinkled on the people. Now that signifies the person's part of the covenant so Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words so blood consecrated to two parties involved in the covenant so the sprinkling 
of blood on the people signified a dedication of obedience. Lord, this is what you said to do. We will obey you. All right? That's a conditional covenant. All right? That means God said to do it. The people said, we'll obey it. That was a, an agreement between God and men in the Old Testament. Now, don't forget this. There's a different word used here in Hebrews for covenant. It doesn't mean agreement. It means a will. The conditions of a will are not made on equal terms. God did not make an agreement with us in the new covenant. He made a will. And of course, when you make a will, the conditions of a will are not made on equal terms with anyone. They are made entirely by one person, and that person is called the testator, and the other party cannot alter it. They can alter the terms, but can only accept them or refuse them. Of course, the in terms are going to include the inheritance, the in, eternal inheritance that comes to us through Christ. Now, this is why our relationship to, to God is described here as a covenant in, with a different word for the terms of which only one person is responsible and who's responsible for the will? Christ. The mediator is respons responsible for the will. So it's unlike the Old Testament covenant in that it's all on Christ. That, that's why there's a gracious offer. We're not asking anybody to do anything but to believe and believing is not a work. Don't ever think it is. It is a gift of God that comes graciously in the offer of the gospel that the relationship is offered solely on the initiative of God's grace. So when we use the word covenant, we must always remember that it does not mean that man made a bargain with God on equal terms. It always means that the whole initiative is with God. And that means salvation is all of the Lord. You don't add anything to it. You don't give anything to it. You don't include anything with it. You agree with, you, you don't even agree with it. You believe it by faith. That's why it is by faith. It is a gift of faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so therefore, the whole initiative of salvation is with God the terms are his and man cannot alter them in the slightest so see the point being made by the author of Hebrews is that under the old covenant God offered the people of Israel a unique relationship to himself but the whole relationship was entirely dependent on keeping the law here is the argument of the Old Test, Old Covenant. It's done away with because Jesus Christ brought in the New Covenant. He brought in a better one because it was a one that was all the initiative of God. Man didn't mess with it, can't touch it, can't manipulate it, can't change it. It's not dependent on his keeping the law it's not depending on his good works. It's not depending on what he has done. It doesn't depend on what we've done. It doesn't depend on how much we've sinned to the extent in which we sinned. It all depends on what Christ accomplished for sinners on the cross. So when he does and when we come to Christ by faith, Jesus Christ provides a new permanent relationship with God, period. Period. So in Hebrews chapter 8, verse number 7, for if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. But because the old covenant could not make man right with God permanently and give us a relationship with God, Jesus Christ had to make a will. 
And when he did that, when Christ shed his blood, he brought redeemed man and God into a covenant of obedience. Not based on our obedience, based on Christ's obedience. So Christ's blood is sprinkled on us in a spiritual sense, wiping out all our sins, making us clean and eternally forgiven so that we, by God's Spirit, will obey Jesus in the power not of the flesh, not of keeping the law, but of the Spirit of God. That's why I love this passage of Scripture in 1 Peter chapter 1. All right? Uh, if you look at Hebrews, James, 1 Peter, this passage right here where it says, verse number 2 of chapter 1, it says, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus, right? And then notice what it says, and be sprinkled with His blood. There it is. There's the ratification of the covenant of Jesus Christ that we actually, by God's Spirit, after conversion, after we're made right with God, can obey God. So we obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. So the blood is used to cleanse everything unclean and make things and people ceremonially clean before God. And when it comes to remitting of sins, the Bible says that there is no remission apart from bloodshedding, Hebrews 9.22. And according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sin. So that brings us back to Hebrews chapter 12, where he says in the verse number 25, which I mentioned last week, why this becomes important, that, that all the blood of the Old Testament was only typical of Christ's blood, because sin and guilt and just punishment stick so frightfully close to sinners and they cannot get rid of it at all whatsoever. It is only the holy, precious, all-sufficient blood of the testator, the will-maker, Jesus Christ, that the sin of his children can be ever wiped away. And the word used for wiped away is the word remission, but it's also translated forgiveness. The forgiveness of sins literally means the sending away forever of the thing that caused separation between us and God in which the mediator mediated the will between us and God so we can be saved, so we can hear the gospel, so that our relationship with God would not only be forever, but it would bear an eternal inheritance in the city of God, which should cause joy in the believer. Tell me there's not some heavy theology going on here. I preached to you this morning in fear and trembling because of the concepts here in, in Hebrews chapter 9 and through 12 that you would get the sense of what's happening here and that God actually wants us to know what's happening because, again, bringing it back to chapter 12, verse 24, where it says, to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Remember from last week that Jesus' blood sprinkling speaks louder and longer and more significantly than Abel's blood. Cain killed Abel, right? His blood spilled into the ground. Why does Abel's blood cry out? And how does it cry out from the Old Testament? It cries out for judgment. It cries out for vengeance, right? That's what it cries out for. And yet, it says here that when Jesus was slain, his blood opened up a new way of reconciliation. That we, his sacrifice made it possible for people to be forgiven by God through the mediator Jesus Christ and become friends of God. So there is no fear at all whatsoever and it has nothing to do with us in the sense of our obedience or disobedience 
in the sense of what we've done or what we haven't done. It has everything to do with Jesus Christ. So, see, when we talk about complete and total salvation, when we mention Jesus Christ as the mediator, that's what we're talking about, that the sinner cannot reconcile himself or herself to God. That's God's place to do that. That is only God's place to do that. It is when the sinner repents, right? And turns to Jesus Christ in faith. Only then, God giving that as a gift also, can God the Father change his attitude toward the sinner from one of wrath to one of peace. And so his change is solely based upon the death of his son and the work of that Jesus accomplished on the cross, that God can set aside his wrath toward a repentant sinner. And from the anger of God, it goes to the joyful celebration of being a believer and knowing what is ahead. So, again, not believing Moses, God's faithful apostle and mediator is one thing. Well, mediator, but not believing in the greater than Moses, the faithful apostle and high priest Jesus Christ is really ruinous altogether. So, in other words, his conclusion in verse 25 is don't refuse God's gracious offer. Don't refuse the mediator who speaks to us through the gospel because there is no other mediator. There's no other way to get saved. This is it. If you do, if you do refuse, then you will not escape God's judgment. But if you have believed, you have escaped God's judgment based on the mediatorial work of Jesus Christ between you and the Father. He's done it all. He was greater than Moses because Moses could never have done what Jesus did. See, so you see what a difference Christ makes? You see how unique your salvation is? You see how special you are to God because of your new position in Christ Jesus? How does Jesus Christ bring many children to glory? By being the mediator of the new covenant and by sealing the covenant with his sacrificial death of which Moses could never have done. There's no other way to end up in glory. You know, I, I'm amazed, though, when you're preaching the gospel to a group of people, maybe some people you don't know, and you're laying out the points of the gospel, you're laying out the law, and how people are under the judgment of the law because they have broken the law in, in, in because of their sin. And then you lay out before them uh, finally the gracious offer that God is offering them through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And you get a, uh, a multitude of facial expressions depending on who you're talking to, where you're talking to them. And then you know right away in your mind there's the fool, there's the naive, there's the scoffer, and it's written on their face. It's not actually written on their face, but it's written on their face. And you, you, you know it, right? And so, but you know why? And, and when you see even the face of a scoffer, who really, if they could, would take you out and beat the living daylights out of you for what you're telling them. But you say, I can stop right here and run, or I'll just keep, continue to give the message and, and leave the results to God, right? And, and yet, oftentimes... It's the scoffer who turns and repents and trusts in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. It always amazed me through my Christian life that I would never have wanted that person to get saved. And God saves them. Or I never could think that they could get saved because of, of who, they're just, they, they had stinky attitudes they just have bad way of dealing with life in, in, in and of itself. And God reaches out and saves them. It humbles you. Because 
there's nobody beyond the grace of God. No one. Even if they're sitting today on death row for a multitude of murders, Christ's death is powerful enough to reach with the depth of the grace of God into that person's heart and forgive them and save them. I don't understand that. I don't think any human being has that kind of mercy or grace or forgiveness, but God does. And see, that is the power of the message of the gospel to go out to all humanity, no matter who they are, and preach it to them and live it and continue on in your faith. And But do it like this. Really, a, un, a joyless Christian is an oxymoron. We have to fight and keep that joy like Gabe was saying this morning. I know I wake up some mornings and say, wow, man, it's going to be a tough day today, you know? And then you, you really kind of like let all kinds of stuff rob you of your, the joy God, God's already given you, right? Joy that really nobody can take away from you. Sometimes you don't, you don't get it robbed from you. You give it away, right? Don't give it away. And I think that this passage of Scripture helps us not to give it away because this is what is in front of us. No matter what happens, this is where we're heading. And that's why we should continue to live the Christian life with gusto and preach the gospel whenever we can, to, ev- to whom- whomever we can, and not hold back. And believe me, God blesses you for it. He brings the results And someday we're going to be very surprised when we're walking on the streets of the city of God who got saved. And it could be that one person that you share the gospel with and they walked away from you in a tirade and they became a Christian. Amen? So God will do that. You know, and just remember that, he saved you. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Again, for the tremendous truth of the gospel. Thank you, Lord, for being our mediator. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for having your blood sprinkled on us in this new covenant that you have made. Not with us, but in the fellowship of the Godhead. Father, Son, and Spirit made a plan to save humanity. Thank you, Lord, that we're the recipients of that plan and that we have a glorious future to look forward to. Lord, let us keep the joy that you've given us, and I pray that joy would even increase as our minds are thinking about things above not things on this earth. And that we know, Lord, that those things cannot rust away, they can't be stolen away, but they are ours forever. And so, Lord, help us to live that way, even on the hardest days of our life, to remember what you've done for us as our mediator and our high high priest. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.